Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 121, Mithras and the Stars. A very obscure 6th or 7th century Christian writer known as Nonus, the monk, or Nonus Mythographus, the mythographer, says the following about the mysteries of Mithras, which are long dead by his time, but clearly still alive and well in the imaginary. Quote, different people have different opinions about Mithras. Some consider him the sun, others the patron of fire. Still others, some specific power, dynamis. And mystery cults to Mithras have arisen, especially among the Chaldeans. End of quote. Now, by Chaldeans, nonus almost certainly means astrologers, or astrally religious people. So why would a late antique Christian author think the Mithraic mysteries were especially astral? Well, first of all, let's specify what we mean when we say astrological and astral here. We don't really mean having to do with horoscopes. Uh, There seems to be a need for some more specific terminology in the study of ancient astral religion, and we shall be talking in this episode about astral religion, which is defined in the Schwepp Glossary, Yes, there is a Schwepp glossary. Go check it out. As, quote, any religious system wherein the state of the heavenly bodies directly influences the state of the human being, and the religion thus addresses itself directly to the heavenly bodies, usually either as obstacles in the way of salvation or as powers which may assist in the soul's ascent. Examples include Basilides, many Hermetica, many Platonist cosmological works, the Mitras Liturgie, the astral ritual recounted by Fakhreddin Arazi, etc., etc. So, the term astrology is often used loosely in the scholarship to mean what we mean here by astral religion. But I feel like we need to reserve the term astrology to refer specifically to the whole predictive practice of making horoscopes and stuff like that, and the theory behind that practice. So, We're going to be talking about astral religion. We saw in the last episode that among the weird and wonderful imagery found in Mithraic temples, we find a lot of astral material. There is, in the first instance, the overarching solar imagery of Mithras, the sun god's soul, and their various interrelations. Sometimes they're the same god, sometimes they're mates, and we don't have a conclusive story of their exact relationship. Maybe there wasn't one in the sense of a systematic theology, right? Ancient gods were pretty fluid, and they could be the same and different gods depending on the context or maybe even at the same time. So you have Mithras and Sol, but there are other details of the basic Tauroctony which can take an astral interpretation. Let's quote Beck here, who sums up the evidence well. Quote, Mithras slays a bull, and around these two are grouped a dog, a snake, a scorpion, a raven, a pair of twins, and not infrequently, particularly in Germany and to a lesser extent on the Danube, a cup and a lion too. The bull's tail is metamorphosed into an ear or ears of wheat. In the heavens we find, within a band extending along and below the zodiac, from Taurus to Scorpius, constellations imagined in ancient uranography as a bull, Taurus, two dogs, Canis Major and Minor, a snake, Hydra, a scorpion, Scorpius, a raven, Corvus, 
a pair of twins, Gemini, a cup, Crater, a lion, Leo, and finally a star called the Wheat Ear, Spica, um, or 1-4 Alpha Virginis, end of quote. So clearly, the Tarakhtni can be read, at the very least, as having a lot of possible astral references in its imagery, and as referring to a specific band of the night sky. Of course, not all Tarakhtanis contain all these figures, but as we saw last time, the Mithras and the bull, the snake, the dog, and the scorpion are pretty much constants. And they can all be read as astral objects. Then there are the zodiacs and half-zodiacs found framing some Tarakhtanis. We can also adduce Kautopates and Kautes, who may represent the rising and setting of the sun or of other heavenly bodies with their mirror image torches, or just represent the movement of the heavens, right? We can adduce the figure of the Leontocephalic god, who appears in some Mithraya, often adorned with astral imagery of various sorts. We can adduce the prevalence of the number seven in Mithraya, the seven steps leading down to the temple, groups of seven stars depicted on Tarakhtanis, the seven initiatory grades, seven separate altars in some temples, which may well be a reference to the seven planetary spheres, although seven is, just seems to be a popular number in antique religions more generally. We can adduce Mithras's starry cloak in some depictions. Scenes that show Mithras bearing on his shoulders the sphere of the universe, or in which a youthful Mithras holds the cosmic sphere in one hand, while with his other he rotates the zodiac, and so forth. All in all, it seems abundantly clear that the Mithraic cult had a strong astral element to it, just going by temple iconography, or at least that this was the case in some Mithraya. Now, whether or not the Mithraists were astrally religious, according to our definition, remains to be seen. But we can see that they were at least interested in symbolic references to the stars and planets. Now, you don't need to be astrally religious to have symbolic references to the stars and planets in your temple. There's a very famous late antique uh, synagogue, for example, that has a massive depiction of a zodiac with the sun at the center. And no one wants to say that Judaism is particularly an astral religion. So this is part of the problem of interpreting this evidence. Now, we have two other extremely important sources of evidence for something stellar going on in the mysteries of Mithras. The first is the pavement of the Mithraeum of Felicissimus at Ostia, which really leaves no reasonable doubt that the initiatory grades of the cult, at least at that Mithraeum, were linked with specific planets, and in an odd planetary ordering which we find nowhere else in antiquity. So we'll discuss that in a minute. The other main source of info here is the literary testimony of Celsus, preserved by Origen, and Porphyry's description of the Mithraeum in his On the Cave of the Nymphs. We'll want to discuss these testimonies in a minute as well. But before we get into this evidence in more detail, let's do a quick survey of some of the ways in which we can interpret all this evidence and see what scholars have made of this astral material in the cult of Mithras. So we can start any survey of scholarship on Mithraism with Cumon. Perhaps surprisingly, for an author who was an authority on Greco-Roman astrology astronomy, especially as it related to religion, Cumon saw the astrological elements in Mithraism as a kind of secondary layer. Uh, basically, he saw an Iranian core of the religion as the true esoteric knowledge at the heart of the mysteries. 
And the undoubted astral material, which he did recognize, he saw as a Greek overlay onto this earlier material. Now, few would follow Cumont here nowadays, although there is certainly some Iranian material in Mithraic culture for sure. Um, very few people think it makes sense to talk about it as a Iranian religion transposed into the Roman Empire. We should note that a lot of crucial evidence, notably the Felicissimus Flor Mosaic, was still underground when Cumont published at the turn of the last century. And it seems likely he might have changed his mind about a lot of things if he'd lived to see the excavations of the 20th century. Now, of those who do take this astral material into account in a serious way, we can identify one subset as the decipherers or the decoders. These are the scholars who are looking for the Mithras code in the sky, the way to um, read the Tauroctony as a reference to specific stellar objects or events. Michael Spidel in 1980, argues that the Tauroctony represents the summer constellations and that Mithras's myth is that of the Greek hero Orion, with whose constellation Mithras is to be equated. David Ulansi, in 1989, identifies Mithras with the constellation of Perseus and argues that the Tauroctony and other symbolism represent the procession of the equinoxes. And uh, Mithras's slaying of the bull, therefore, brings us out of the age of Taurus, and into that of Aries, which would be the present age in which we are. And uh, we will be there until the dawning of the age of Aquarius in about 150 years' time. K.G. Sandlin, in 1988, identifies Mithras with the constellation Auriga, the charioteer. We could cite a large number of other such interpretations. They come thick and fast, and you can find them handily surveyed, for example, in Chapter 3 of Roger Beck's 2006 book, which you'll find in the notes to this episode. And Beck himself argued in 1994, following the lead of A.J. Rutgers, 1970, that Mithras represents the sun in Leo, specifically. So it's not a question of who is Mithras, it's a question of when is Mithras. Now, a problem with all of these decodings, without getting into detail, is that if any of these readings is right, then all the others are wrong. But they all seem to be argued on more or less equally convincing grounds. So, listeners may consider the evidence, but in this episode, we shall not be concerned with decoding the Tauroctony in this way. However, we also don't want to go down the route of the scholars that we might call the deniers, uh, notably Klaus, who almost completely disregards the evidence for astral religiosity in the cult of Mithras, calling the work of the decipherers, quote, unconvincing speculation. Now, Klaus might be right that no one has nailed it exactly if there is an astral interpretation of the Tauroctony. It may be that no one has found it. It may be one person has found it, but it's not convincing enough for him. Or maybe there just isn't such an interpretation, right? Maybe the Tauroctony isn't a star map. So he could be right about this. But to compensate by kind of ignoring all the zodiacs and stellar images and not to mention the floor mosaics at Ostia seems to be throwing out the baby with the bathwater. He doesn't ignore the floor mosaics, but he doesn't really make much of the fact that each grade has a planet attached to it, for example. We are going to follow more or less the general approach of scholars like the later Beck and Merkelbach. We want to get a handle on the evidence, and then we, that is I, uh, are going to speculate a little bit in a contextual way about astral salvation 
in the Mysteries of Mithras. But first, our evidence. Let's have a look at this pavement, first of all. The pavement from the Felicissimus Mithraim at Ostia, you can see a picture of it in the gallery accompanying this episode, is a doozy. While the imagery is just that, imagery without a scrap of text to tell us what's supposed to be going on, it's abundantly clear that the seven panels of the mosaic represent the seven initiatory grades of Mithraism, which were blasphemously revealed by the Christian author Jerome, as we mentioned last time. So we have the names from Jerome, the names of the different grades, and here we can see from the imagery that these are referring to the very same grades, and it's quite clear that Jerome is more or less right, and that's what's depicted in imagery in these seven panels. Now, each grade as depicted has some grade sort of paraphernalia showing what grade it is, along with a symbol representing a planet. We can thus think that each grade is either under the tutelary spirit of that planet, or perhaps represents an ascent to or other encounter with that planet. In other words, we might want to think that the graded initiation is mapped onto a cosmic ascent. We'll return to this speculative idea at the end of the episode. A curious feature of the pavement is that the planetary ordering it depicts is found nowhere else in antiquity. Listeners may be familiar with the so-called Chaldean ordering of the planets. This is an ordering by their apparent speed in the sky. So the assumption is all the planets and the sun and moon move at the same speed. Thus, a planet that appears to be moving more slowly must be further away. And the Chaldean ordering goes along this assumption. So the moon is obviously the fastest, it's the nearest to us. Saturn is the slowest, it's the furthest from us. The name for this ordering, incidentally, Chaldean, is first attested only in Macrobius, a late astrally religious Platonist whom we shall be discussing in the podcast when we get to the 5th century. But the ordering itself is very common in the classical period. We see it, it's assumed by Cicero, by Plutarch, by many others. Um, It's not the only ordering of the planets in antiquity. The astrologers, for example, had their own proprietary ordering but it seems maybe unbalanced to have been the most common one. It goes from Earth, Moon, Mercury, Venus, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn. Now, with the Chaldean ordering of the planets, there is some leeway with Mercury, the Sun, and Venus, as they all have apparently the same speed in the sky. But the system with the Sun right at the middle of the seven planets seems to have become the most popular, probably because it makes sense that the sun would have this sort of middle position, which is a special position, and the sun is a very special planet. Now, here is the ascending order of the grades of Mithraic initiation as depicted on the pavement, along with the attendant planet of each grade. So, starting from the Earth, or starting from the bottom, we have Corax, Mercury, Nymphus, Venus, Miles, Mars, Leo, Jupiter, Perses, Moon, Heliodromus, Sun, Pater, Saturn. So Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, Moon, Sun, Saturn. That is an odd ordering of the planets. As you can imagine, a lot of speculation has gone into why the Mithraeus might have followed this ordering rather than another. Roger Beck's 1988 book is pretty much devoted to this question. At the end of the day, though, this proprietary planetary order is an enigma. We don't really understand what's going on there. But what we do know one of those precious bits of information about Mithraism that nearly everyone agrees with is that the initiatory grades were somehow attached to planets. 
at least in this Mithraim, and this raises a lot of intriguing questions. Avid Schwepp listeners will be sitting up and paying strict attention at this point, perhaps thinking of the planetary ascent themes found in Plato and Platonists like Philo, Plutarch, or even Plotinus. See Enneads 4, 3 and 4, 4, the places where Plotinus gets the most planetary in his account of the descent and ascent of the soul. Or you might be thinking of the ritual ascent practices found in the Ennead reveals the Ogdoad from Nag Hammadi, which, once we've read that, kind of puts other Hermetica, like Corpus Hermeticum 1, into a new light, and you could start to think about cosmic ascent as a practice. Perhaps you're thinking about the accounts of the Merkava descenders to the chariot, although dating those is always a fun project. And of course, you might be thinking of the elevation of the soul promised the theurge in the Chaldean oracles. This theme of ascent, of cosmic ascent, is found in a lot of Western esoteric thought, in fact, and these are just a few early examples. We shall see it again when we get to the Jewish Kabbalah, to Islamic Kate, esoteric thought, and so on. We see it in Dante, for heaven's sake. See what I did there? So the question is, are we seeing it in Mithraism? So that's a question which I'm very happy to ask and think about, and I'm going to leave it hanging for the moment and turn to our literary evidence. So here we start with Celsus, always a good place to start, as quoted by Origen. Any listeners wondering who these gentlemen might be, please go back and listen to episode 99 of the podcast. Now, here is a passage from Origen refuting Celsus as usual. Celsus has adduced the Mithraic mysteries as an example of a legitimate esoteric religious movement with a deeper hidden meaning in contrast to Christianity, which is a parvenu wannabe religion. You know the story. Here's Origen, Contra Celsum 6, 21-22, in Chadwick's translation, with a few bits taken out and with some interlinearary comments by me. So, quote, The scriptures accepted in the churches of God do not declare that there are seven heavens, or indeed any definite number of them at all, though the Bible does seem to teach that there are heavens, perhaps meaning the spheres of the planets of which the Greeks speak, or perhaps something else more mysterious. Boom. So, Origen saying, maybe we do have the seven planetary spheres, Celsus, or maybe we have something even better. Back to our quote. Celsus also follows Plato in saying that the way for the souls to and from the earth passes through the planets. Okay. Uh, we know the territory we're in here, Origen is thinking of the Phaedrus, the cosmic vision at the myth of Ur, at the end of the Republic, and so on. But it's interesting, isn't it, that the way for souls to go to the Earth and from the Earth is through the planets as a sort of signature Platonist teaching or a teaching of Plato, right? You didn't learn that in philosophy class. Back to our quote. But Moses, our most ancient prophet, says that in a divine dream, our forefather Jacob had a vision in which he saw a ladder reaching to heaven and angels of God ascending and descending upon it, and the Lord standing still at its top. Perhaps in this story of the ladder, Moses was hinting at these truths, or yet more profound doctrines. Philo also composed a book about this ladder, which is worthy of intelligent and wise study by those who wish to find the truth. Yes, gentle listener, that is our Philo. Origen, like his predecessor Clement, was an avid reader of the Jew from Alexandria, as we recall from earlier episodes. On with the quotation. 22. After this, from a desire to parade his erudition in his attack on us, 
Kelsus also describes some Persian mysteries, where he says, These truths are obscurely represented by the teaching of the Persians and by the mystery of Mithras, which is of Persian origin. The text says, So we are dealing with Ainigma, esoteric discourse. Kelsis is saying that the Mithraic mysteries are esoteric encoded messages with a hidden meaning, right? Back to our quote. For in the latter, that is in the mysteries of Mithras, there is a symbol, symbolon, of the two orbits in heaven, the one being that of the fixed stars and the other that assigned to the planets, and of the soul's passage through these. The symbolon is this. There is a ladder with seven gates, and at its top, an eighth gate. The first of the gates is of lead, the second of tin, the third of bronze, the fourth of iron, the fifth of an alloy, the sixth of silver, and the seventh of gold. They associate the first with Kronos, Saturn, taking lead to refer to the slowness of the star, the second with Aphrodite, Venus, comparing her with the brightness and softness of tin, the third with Zeus, Jupiter, as the gate that has a bronze base, and which is firm, the fourth with Hermes, Mercury, for both iron and Hermes are reliable for all works and make money and are hardworking, the fifth with Aries, Mars, the gate which as a result of the mixture is uneven and varied in quality, the sixth with the moon as the silver gate, and the seventh with the sun as the golden gate, these metals resembling their colors. End of quote. Okay, so this is the famous Mithraic ladder. But before we get to the ladder, what is this said to be a symbol of? The two orbits in heaven, the one being that of the fixed stars and the other that assigned to the planets, and of the soul's passage through these. So this is a symbol of cosmic ascent and the terrain across which it must pass, right? Now, the idea that the soul passes through two orbits, periodon, might be a reference to first passing through the one, then the other. So in other words, you go through the planetary spheres, then you go through the fixed stars, and then you're with God. Or, I think, it might be a reference to the point where the two orbits intersect. That is, the meeting of the plane of the ecliptic and the celestial equator, as indicated by Plato's famous flattened chi symbol in the Timaeus, which, we recall, sometimes appears on the sphere atop which the ion stands, and also sometimes appears in a lot of other Mithraic contexts, actually. In fact, the the chi symbol is very often depicted on an orb meant to represent the cosmos. So it's a a general uh, cosmological idea in the Greco-Roman world. And uh, it may be that the ladder is sort of leading to that intersection point. I'm sort of interpreting back here based on knowledge we find very explicitly in Macrobius, which we'll get to later on. But I might be right to do so, I might be wrong. Either way, The planetary ordering given on the ladder here is nothing like the one found in our mosaic pavement. It is, in fact, the ordering of the days of the week going backwards. So starting from Saturn, Saturday. How weird is that? The metals associated with each planet are also totally weird. Now, the idea that, for example, in alchemy, 
each planet has a single metal assigned to it in antiquity is false. There's lots of alchemical systems of planetary metal correspondences, um, even later in the Middle Ages. But these correspondences given by Celsus really seem weird. Who associates a planet with an alloy? You know what I mean? And how can Mars not be iron, really? Anyway, again, here we have to maybe take away what is clear in this otherwise bizarre bit of interpretation. The soul needs to pass through the seven planetary spheres and the sphere of the fixed stars, and there are gates along the way. This ladder must represent the path to doing that, right? Each of a different metal, and that constitutes the way out. The whole thing is read as an enigma and a symbolon, which is to say esoteric text. Now, as avid listeners know, symbolon sometimes, but not always, refers to a visual image or other object as opposed to a literal text, while an enigma is usually referring to a text written in words that you then uh, find other words hiding within. So it may be that Celsus is describing a diagram or a piece of religious imagery, maybe something he saw carved on the wall of Mithraeum, we don't know. If we found a, such a, an artifact from antiquity, a, a Mithraic ladder composed of seven different metals, we'd be very, very pleased, and it would answer a lot of questions. Now, we might be tempted to read this wonderful bit of interpretation alongside the pavement from Ostia and consider it an account somehow corresponding to progress through the grades of initiation. The pavement does look awfully ladder-like, in fact. But there's a few obvious problems here. For one thing, the ordering is totally off. Celsus's ladder starts with Saturn, while the grade system ends with Saturn, for example. For another thing, the metals are just weird. And lastly, as Robert Turkan rightly points out in this connection, quote, In the mysteries of Isis or of Mithras, just like in those of Samothrace or of Eleusis, the only thing the Celsus of the true account cares about is the Interpretatio Platonica. End of loosely translated quote. By Interpretatio Platonica, here, Turkan is referring specifically to this reading of traditional religious materials as enigmata and symbola, mining them for esoteric philosophic wisdom, a practice that we've seen in all our discussions of uh, Middle Platonism and so on. So what he's saying is, that's what Celsus, whenever Celsus looks at a piece of uh, religious culture, what he's looking for, what he's doing, is this form of esoteric reading to find the Platonism within. So unless we think that the founders of Mithraism really were esoteric nomothetes who encoded a Platonistic, astralized metaphysics of soul travel into their cult, we are not going to find such a doctrine in the mysteries, even though Celsus finds it there. I hope that's clear. In other words, we are doubtless looking at something genuinely Mithraic, whatever this ladder was, presumably Celsus got it from a genuine Mithraic source. So the, the actual either bit of textual description or the actual object or diagram or whatever it is he's talking about, that is probably a, an artifact of Mithraism. But the interpretation of it as a kind of map of the soul's ascent out of the cosmos might be Celsus reading the mysteries as being, well, Platonist mysteries. So that's a skeptical kind of caution about interpreting this interpretation, because let's remember, we're not interpreting the object itself or the diagram or whatever. We're interpreting, well, Origin's attack on Celsus's interpretation of it. And incidentally, Celsus goes on to 
talk more about it, how it, different aspects of the ladder can correspond to the elements and to aspects of the cosmos and so on. I've left that bit out, but you can go check it out. Chapter 23 of Book 6. But we can also turn back to Turkan and point out, with a bunch of other scholars, that, well, we do know that a lot of mystery cults had a kind of enactment of death as part of their ritual. And we know that in the imperial period, a lot of religious movements, as well as philosophers, saw the process of death as a reversal of the descent of the soul into the cosmos. In other words, it was an ascent through the planets. I mean, we see this literally in Plutarch's myths, right? So, of course, the rites of Mithras would have included the soul's reascent in their religious symbolism, especially when we consider all the zodiacs and planetary grades and so forth. So, this is a perfectly plausible counter-reading, and it doesn't have to be Platonist, it doesn't have to follow Celsus's interpretation, to be a genuine Mithraic teaching. The astral afterlife is a widespread thing in, in esoteric religious movements in, in the Roman period, but in the end it will be up to us to decide here. And even if we think this ladder and Celsus's interpretation of it is genuinely Mithraic, we still don't know what the heck those metals are about, or why the ordering follows the days of the week in reverse, or any of that stuff. Now, from the soul's ascent through the spheres in Celsus, we turn to the downward path of souls and their route back out again. Tain es kato kathodon ton psychon kai palin exodon. Of Porphyry, de antronympharum 6. We shall be meeting Porphyry, Plotinus's most prolific student, in a few episodes' time. But here is a foretaste of his esoteric hermeneutics of culture to whet your appetite. In the mellifluous translation of the great Thomas Taylor. So this is Porphyry uh, interpreting the Mithraic temple. Quote, Thus also the Persians, mystically signifying the descent of the soul into the sublunary regions and its regression from it, initiate the mystic, or him who is admitted to the arcane sacred rites, in a place which they denominate a cavern. For, as Eubulus says, Zoroaster was the first who consecrated in the neighboring mountains of Persia a spontaneously produced cave, florid and having fountains, in honor of Mithra, the maker and father of all things. A cave, according to Zoroaster, bearing a resemblance of the world, which was fabricated by Mithra. But the things contained in the cavern, being arranged according to commensurate intervals, were symbols of the mundane elements and climates. End of quote. Now, Porphyry's concern in this work is to interpret a curious cave which appears in Homer, and to do this, he uses full-bore esoteric hermeneutics and kind of scrapes up every cave from anywhere he can find it in the whole ethnography of the Greco-Roman world. Now, Turkan and many others doubt the value of this passage for interpreting the Mithraeum, although we do know that these curious temples were called caves, and they were designed to represent caves artificially when they weren't set up in an actual cave. And the idea that the Mithraic cave might somehow represent a microcosm of the cosmos seems a really natural reading of it. I mean, the vaulted ceiling, which sometimes had stars painted on it in, in many Mithraia, seems clearly to represent the vault of the sky. So this is, 
the other really troublesome bit of um, literary evidence we have for the meaning of Mithraism or of the Mithraeum. And uh, scholarly opinions about it vary from you just it's just absolutely useless for interpreting Mithraism as a religion to no, this is this is a really crucial bit of data and clearly does have some uh, hints as to what the Mithraists were on about. And if that is the case, then the Mithraic cave somehow signifies the descent and ascent of souls into and out of the sublunary world, which again is a perfectly plausible uh, thing for a imperial Roman cult to be concerned with, especially an initiatory cult, because the initiatory cults, as we know, often had a sort of mimesis of death as part of what they did, or at least that's true of the earlier mystery cults. But then again, maybe it's totally wrong. Now, before we finish, let's think about all this evidence a little bit. Uh, Spoiler alert, I'm not going to give you the answer here. I'm much more interested in presenting a range of evidence and a range of scholarly opinions and letting you guys hopefully get intrigued and search further in the evidence. It can all be found. I mean, the the Vermasarin and other published works pretty much present everything we know about Mithraism with deluxe photos and, and all the rest. So you can really survey the evidence yourself if you're interested. And you've now got a reasonable handle on the two main literary sources for this religious movement that aren't from hostile Christian witnesses. The Greek for both of them is given in the notes to this episode. That being said, I can't resist um, kind of recombining and playing with his evidence a little bit here. So we know there are grades of initiation. Um, We have really strong evidence for that. And we know that they can at least have planetary patrons attached to them. Whether the planets are conceived of as gods, whether the planets are conceived of as uh, perhaps spheres that are barriers to the ascent of the soul, this is something we can't say for sure. But we know that at least at one Mithraim, planets and grades are associated. We have literary evidence for a ladder denoting a cosmic ascent, or at least interpreted by a Platonist, Celsus, as denoting a cosmic ascent. And we have Porphyry's evidence for the Mithraic cave somehow depicting the soul's entry into and descent out of the cosmos. So what did all this mean for the Mithraists? Spoiler alert, we don't know, but we can make some educated guesses. We know that Mithras was a saving divinity, a soter. Now the question then becomes, and this is a really important question for interpreting Mithraism, was he the kind of savior who helps you out with worldly troubles, uh, like, for example, Asclepius or Poseidon, right? Or was he the kind of savior god who helped you out after death, like Jesus? Or was he maybe both? Walter Burkert is a bit of a spoil sport here, questioning the Fraserian dying god thesis, which he had perfectly legitimate reason to do. He also denies that we have much evidence at all for a life after death for mystery cult initiates. Quote, There is a dimension of death in all of the mystery initiations, but the concept of rebirth or resurrection of either gods or mystai is anything but explicit. Okay, Walter, it might not be explicit, but these are the mysteries after all. Nothing is particularly explicit in our evidence. 
For Burkert, then, the salvation offered by the cults was not a post-mortem salvation, or at least the evidence isn't there to say that it was. Personally, I don't buy this. I think the easiest way to read the evidence, patchy though it is, is to consider that these cults gave their initiates hope for a better outcome after death. And I think, this is an old idea, which is out of fashion just now, but is probably going to come around again as these things do, I think that Christianity, with its afterlife mythos, was riffing on the same theme, uh, which was, after all, a pretty widespread theme across the Mediterranean. The Egyptians had a robust afterlife belief. We have seen the Orphic evidence in the podcast, so we know that the Orphics were um, alive in the underworld and trying to get a better deal. We know about ideas of an afterlife arising in Hellenistic Judaism of the late Second Temple period, etc., etc. I reckon Mithras was a saving deity in the current life and probably offered a way toward a form of immortality or transcendence of death in the next phase of existence. And I suspect strongly that this immortality was linked to, was acquired through, right? Some form of cosmic ascent, probably experienced through ritual, and probably this had something to do with the step-by-step initiations undergone by the Mithraists. Incidentally, I disagree with Klaus, whom we saw last episode, arguing that only a select priestly class underwent the graded initiations. I don't feel like the evidence really pulls that way, although we can't say for sure. It seems possible, but we don't really have a strong enough uh, evidence to make that case. So anyway, these are my suspicions based on this sort of cumulative evidence and some comparative uh, thinking. I like the way Alvar puts it in his 2008 book. So let's quote him here. He's speaking of Turkan's skepticism that we can read the testimony of these Platonists as having an actual bearing on the Mithraic mysteries. According to Turkan, quote, and I'm quoting Alvar on Turkan here, just to be clear. According to Turkan, quote, the question revolves around the interpretation of the ascension of the soul, the heavenly journey mentioned by Celsus and Porphyry. Individual salvation was not a feature of Mithraism. The bull's death constitutes a once-and-for-all biocosmic salvation. Others, such as Roger Beck, 1988 and 2006, reject this and believe that Celsus and Porphyry do tell us about actual Mithraism, but that their information relates to the process of initiation in the Mithraeum, and that the world beyond is not the primary issue here. I incline to think that an account of the soul's journey was given during initiation, as the sole means of presenting vividly a doctrine whose truth the initiand would later have an opportunity to experience firsthand. The ritual as performed in the Mithraeum did contain some kind of soul journey towards perfection. We all know, however, that initiation is an imitation of death, so it is not surprising that Mithraism should have made the point in these terms. End of quote. So, this strikes me as a fairly sensible approach. But it is just the opinion of one scholar. And the other scholars mentioned, Burkert, whom we talked about before this quote, whose solid judgment should never be lightly gone against, because this man was not afraid to make dangerous 
positive claims, but also very skeptical about making unfounded positive claims. And Turkan and Beck, mentioned in the quote, all have totally different takes on this matter, which should be taken seriously, which in turn should be taken as uh, perhaps a caution against speculating. For my part, though, I want to speculate. So against Turkan, I don't see why Mithras can't be both saving the entire cosmos and offering individual salvation to the initiates. Isn't that just what Jesus does in uh, Christianity? So we don't have a problem with that, so why can't Mithras do it? Against Beck, I would say that I agree that these references in the Platonists are most likely references to the process of initiation. But why assume that this had nothing to do with the ultimate fate of the soul or self? We're told that the Eleusinian mystics attained hope for a better fate after death through their initiations. Why not Mithraists? It just seems natural. Like, what's the point of getting initiated? I mean, there's obviously lots of points, communal meals, membership of the local uh, army guild or whatever. But if you can um, obtain for yourself a lasting home with Mithras in the afterlife, all the better. As for Alvar, whom we have just quoted, I would ask him why the soul journey toward perfection should be expressed in terms of imitation of death, but somehow not really be about death which is what he seems to imply at the end of that quote. Here's a few points that none of these scholars seem to be talking about, comparative points. As we know from our discussion of of Corpus Hermeticum 13, you don't need to die to become an immortal god. And from the Hermetic text, the Ennead reveals the Ogduad from Nag Hammadi, we have a pretty good idea that you don't need to die to ascend through the cosmos. Planetary sphere by planetary sphere and actually encounter God on his home turf in the Ogdoad and the Ennead. As we know from Christianity, you can be reborn without actually physically dying, but you can't be reborn without dying first, so there must be a way to die before you die, right? And this seemingly is an everyday thing for Christians. As we know from Plotinus, ascent out of the cosmos could also be an everyday thing something you do all the time and can even describe in terms of what it's like when you're there. So I take all of these religious and philosophical instances as examples of the surprising ways in which ancient esoteric movements and thinkers engaged with the astral realm above them in their geocentric cosmos, passing through or otherwise escaping the planets so as to escape fate, to attain immortalization, and even theosis godhood. Surely these examples are relevant comparative data for what the Mithraists might have been doing, or at least what some of them might have been doing. In other words, initiation can be ritualized cosmic ascent, can also be a kind of mimesis of death and the eventual final uh, escape of the soul from the cosmos, can be salvation and even perhaps immortalization and or theosis, it can be all of these things. Because all of these things are things people are doing at the time. Now, we're leaving our Mithraic astral material on an open-ended note. And hopefully it's a fruitfully open-ended note, which will inspire you, gentle listener, to think about this stuff, investigate further, and come to your own conclusions, or just shrug your shoulders and admit that we don't know. But we couldn't possibly leave the range of themes we've discussed in this episode without turning to an 
essential, amazing, extraordinary, precious, and unique document from antiquity. One which not only alludes to ascent through the cosmic spheres in search of immortality, it gives us detailed instructions on how to do it, and the way you do it is by going to meet Helios Mithras. I refer, of course, to the Mithras Liturgy. Join us next time as we discuss this gem of ancient esoteric literature with help from a very special guest. And until then, be like the exact nature of Mithras's saving power and stay esoteric. Esoteric.